Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this monthly podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. Who should bear the main burden of social service? Is it the state, the private sector, NGOs, communities or individuals? This is a very complex discussion, so central to the question of rising inequality. In order to contribute to this debate, Laura Offers has published a paper for the Unbris Conference Overcoming Inequality in a Fractured World Between Elite Power and Social Mobilization, which took place in Geneva last November. Laura's paper is concerned with how informal workers' organizations have become involved in health service provision, something that is often termed co-production. She draws from two case studies, one from India and another one from Thailand, to explain how grassroots organizations have taken important roles in the provision of social services. Laura is Wigo's Social Protection Director and Research Associate in Rhodes University in South Africa. She is here again with us to discuss the issues surrounding informal workers co-producing social services in the Global South, the title of her paper. Laura, welcome back to the Informal Economy podcast, Social Protection. Thank you, Cyrus. It's good to be here again. Let's start from the beginning. So the title of your paper is informal workers co-producing social services in the global south. What does co-producing mean in this context? So, I mean, I think co-production can refer to a variety of different situations in which you have services that we would traditionally think of as provided by the state, but instead of just being provided by the state, they're provided by a partnership between the state and either civic organizations, social movements, and even the private sector. So public-private partnerships, for example, can be one example of co-production. But essentially what it is referring to is a service that is being produced by more than one institutional actor. I think a, a classic example that we are very used to at WeGo are the cooperatives of waste pickers that we come across in Latin America and India who work with municipal governments to provide solid waste management services. So could you provide us some examples from social protection in particular? So we, for the last two years, have been working with two of our partner organizations, uh, the Lok Swastya Sewa Mandali, which is part of the broader Self-Employed Women's Association as a health and childcare cooperative. Um, and we've also been working with Homenet Thailand, based in Thailand, organization of home-based workers, on health innovations for informal workers. And I think what's come out of this project are some very interesting examples of co-production, quite different examples, which are ensuring that informal workers are receiving better and more appropriate health services. So, for example, Sewa have set up what they call Shakti Kendras, or Workers Empowerment Centers. How their cooperative of health workers used to operate was that they, they used to go out door to door in the community doing health education, particularly filling a gap in services that weren't being provided at primary health care level in India, in rural and urban areas. 
they've now moved towards a one-stop shop model, which they call the Shakti Kendras, which is a central space in the neighborhood or community uh, where workers can come and find a community health worker who does a variety of things. She links them up to health benefits that are provided by the state, makes sure that they have the right documentation, and follows the worker through the process of applying for the state benefits. It's not an easy thing to get your state benefit in India because there's myriad levels of bureaucracy and numbers of documents that are very, very hard for poor workers to get together. So the community health worker only sees her job as done once the, the informal worker has received the benefit from the state. And that can be a cash benefit, for example, a maternity grant, or it can be access to a health insurance, which means that they don't have to pay for health care when they go to a health centre. But the community health workers are also doing a lot of work to develop relationships with health centres, primary health centres in the area, and trying to ensure that several workers are aware of the services that they can receive from these public health centres. So on the one hand, working a lot with the workers about and trying to, to promote the use of public health centres. A lot of informal workers in India go to the private sector because they think it's quicker. And it is often is quicker, but it can be a lot more expensive. On the other hand, they're working with the medical officers and the staff of the medical centre to try and ensure that the services the informal workers get are better, of better quality and better adapted to their situations. So, for example, instead of only being given five days worth of diabetes medication, say we have argued in one area of Ahmedabad, can you, can you at least give 10 to 15 days of medication? Because then the worker doesn't have to leave her job and come and stand in the health centre every five days, which is doing nothing to raise levels of compliance with treatment for non-communicable diseases. So there's a, a working both with the workers and trying to link them up to the state in that way. So that's one, one example um, from our health innovations work. A second example is, is HomeNet Thailand, who have been doing a lot of work with what are called the local health funds in Thailand, which are co-funded funds that sit within at municipal level. And they, people's organizations in Thailand can apply to the funds to run their own health promotion activities. Quite a lot of this money goes to primary health care centers for family-based health, health work, but there is a certain amount where grassroots organizations can apply. Up until last year, no organizations of informal workers had ever applied and been successful for the local health funds. But what Homeless Thailand have done is through a process of training worker organizations in how to apply for the funds, how to network, how to write proposals, how to develop their own ideas for health promotion activities that suit informal workers, for example, focusing on occupational health activities. 26 groups of informal workers last year received were successful in receiving funds from the local, local health funds to run their own health promotion activities for their members. I think there's another thing that's a more gendered issue that I think is really important in that both Sewa and Homeless Thailand are working very closely with health workers or health volunteers who are mainly women. So Thailand has for quite a long time had a cadre of health volunteers in the communities. They receive a small stipend from the state, but really it's about promoting healthy behaviors in their communities. A lot of those health volunteers are also members of Homeless Thailand. Um, and what Homeless Thailand has, has done is train up these health volunteers to develop ideas for proposals for health promotion activities on their own. And that's different from what usually has happened, because what usually happens is that a director of a primary health facility will be the one to develop the proposal. 
and then he'll go around to the community asking for feedback. And people think, oh, well, he's the expert. So he, you know, what have we got to say? And there have been certain activities that have been developed which, which haven't really taken hold. And one of HomeNet's arguments is that because, well, the people themselves didn't, they didn't see it as a priority. So they have really spent a lot of time trying to increase the confidence of these health volunteers to develop their own proposals and to take ownership of those and to have confidence that health volunteers can actually come up with good ideas for health activities. So it's challenging a sort of power dynamic in the health system, which often puts community health workers and health volunteers right at the bottom of the heap. And I think SEWA has been doing doing the same with its community health workers. So SEWA's community health workers are drawn from its basic membership. Again, in India, the community health workers are at the bottom of the system, the health system, in terms of, you know, everything you can think of. You know, they're not properly paid employees. They're usually poor women who find it hard to challenge um, authority um, they get dumped with a lot of the, the work in terms of having to reach out to grassroots communities and meeting government indicators and targets, but they don't get paid, you know, anything near enough for the work that they do. So often quite disempowered. And what Sarah have been trying to do is they've trained their community health workers to understand the state system. And the way they've done that is by taking them on a series of exposure visits, finding out all the information that they can about how the system works and what benefits should go to whom, and spending time introducing community health workers to state officials so that this relationship can begin to develop. The state officials realize that the Sarah community health worker can help them meet their targets, uh, is someone who is very knowledgeable, not only about the community, but understands the state health system. And the community health worker stops being afraid of the bureaucracy. I mean, I, I was very struck by one interview uh, we carried out with a several community health worker who said, I cried the first time that I had to go and talk to a government official. I was that scared. Through the process of training and exposure to the bureaucracy, she's lost that fear. She can now walk into a primary health care centre with, with no fear and engage with a medical officer. So again, it's about, it's a political thing, but it, it's about, it's, it's a sort of gendered class turning that, that hierarchy on its head and saying that actually these are empowered workers. One, one of the big debates regarding co-production is whether it undermines the capacity of the state and it feeds into the new liberal agenda of releasing the state from its obligation as a public service provider. What do you think about that? I, I mean, I think it's a tricky line. It's absolutely true that you got, get contexts where civil society organizations or NGOs are taking on the responsibility of providing the service, and it is allowing the state off the hook, for sure. Or it's, you know, it's allowing the state not to employ its own community health workers to do this work. Um, it's putting great pressure on local communities and especially poorer women who tend to take up, take up most of the responsibility for providing care in communities uh, to provide the services for themselves. So, yes, I mean, I think that, that, that there is absolutely the danger of this being a shifting of responsibility from the state onto communities and poor communities at that. However, I think it is important uh, to recognize that it, it's not always the case and that some instances this is not all that is going on, um, that something else might be happening as well and that it might actually be quite progressive. It's what Melanie Sampson, who has worked a lot for WeGo and worked on Waste Pickers, has called uh, redefining the public sphere. And I think that is what 
my paper was really trying to explore. Uh -huh. So my next question is then, when do you think co-production can be more progressive? So the two sort of scholar activists who've done quite a lot of thinking about this issue have developed some basic principles, which I tried to draw on in the paper to help us think more critically about the work of Sewa and, and Homenet Thailand um, here, whether this was a shifting of responsibility or whether it could be seen as something else. The first is Diana Mitlin from the International Institute of Environment and Development in London. And uh, she argued that in contexts where the state is weak or where provision is privatized and inaccessible to the poor, where grassroots movements are providing essential basic services for their members, they are serving their practical needs in this way. And yes, in, in that way, it is a shifting of responsibility. But at the same time, many of those movements are actually involved in a very politically strategic process. They're using the process of producing a service with the state to build a relationship with the state to build a relationship with the people working in the state um, and using that relationship to enhance their power to influence how state policy um, is implemented on the ground. The second person who's, who's written and thought about this is Melanie Sampson, as I, as I mentioned, really thinking about waste picker cooperatives and, and coming from a place that is more focused on grassroots movements of informal workers. Uh, but also coming from the context of South Africa, uh, where we have to think quite carefully about the integration of waste picker cooperatives into solid waste management, because it's very easy to think, well, this is actually a neoliberalization of the state. This is about the state laying off uh, municipal waste workers and employing much lower paid informal workers to do the job. Right. But is there something else going on? Is that really how we, we think about the integration of waste pickers into solid waste management? And she was saying, no, that's actually not what's happening. And, and gave some very good examples from Brazil and India to illustrate her points. And that paper is actually in the Uyghur Working Paper series. I, I really recommend reading it. But both Mitten and Samson develop a set of criteria for determining whether co-production is progressive or not. And I sort of bring them together in the paper and provide a, a broad summary. And I think the four key criteria are as follows. The first is that it's providing a service that is not yet provided by the state or not best provided by the state so that it is not a withdrawal of the state. Okay, so in the case of waste pickers, they're providing a service, a recycling service, which in South Africa, the state has never provided. In the case of Sewa, community health workers, they started out working on reproductive health issues. But the, the Indian state now has a cadre of community health workers called Ashes, and their role is very much based on maternal and reproductive health issues and going out into communities and being those grassroots workers. So Sewa has now moved away from providing those services. And what they are now focusing on are things like mental health, occupational health, non-communicable diseases, things that, that a primary health care is not yet a focus of the Indian primary health care system. So in a way, they are filling the gaps, but also at the same time pushing the state to think about where and how it, become, it can become involved in those. So I think that's the first criteria that is important. The second one is that it needs to be driven by grassroots organizations from the bottom up. It can't be something that's imposed by the state. 
So in both of these cases, these are ideas that have been developed by grassroots organizations themselves, and they are engaging with the state. It's it's not the state coming and saying, okay, we want everybody to get involved in health promotion activities, and we're going to use your organizations to do it. It's not, it's the other way around in many ways. I think the, the third criteria is that in the process of co-producing the service, grassroots movements are engaging in a political process to transform the nature of the state, or they have an objective to increase citizen control of the state. And I think in relation to the two health examples I've given, I think this is interesting because it it challenges our ideas about what policy advocacy is and what political action actually is. I think sometimes we have an idea that policy is only formed in formal policy spaces. But uh, there was a scholar in the 1970s, an academic called Michael Lipsky, and he argued against this point. He said, actually, real policy, the policy that gets implemented on the ground is not made in formal policy spaces. It's made by the frontline workers at the frontline of the state who are the ones who really decide what gets implemented, often working under huge pressure and with little resources. But they are the ones who decide who gets what in the end. And that is actually policy. And I think what's so interesting is that both these health innovation examples, both Sarah and Homely Talent have made a lot of effort to develop relationships with frontline officials. So for Sarah, it has been about developing relationships with the community health workers, the state community health workers, and the medical officers and primary health care centers, and the medical, you know, the managers of community healthcare centers. For Homelet Thailand, it's been about developing relationships with the municipalities who control the the local health funds. And I think those relationships are part of building a relationship. They're building a relationship and they're using that relationship, as Diana Mitlin pointed out, to develop some kind of leverage about how policy is being implemented. And that is policy advocacy. It's not policy advocacy in a formal policy space, but it's certainly changing the way that policy is being implemented. I think the third thing that they're doing, well, particularly in India, is that they're they're actually increasing the exposure of informal workers to the public health system, right? And there's increasing research showing that if people don't have any idea about what the state should provide or could provide, they're less likely to make any demands of the state, right? And I think that's been the case a lot in India. People have tended to go to the private sector uh, because of the terrible reputation, often deservedly so, of, of public health facilities. But there has been investment into public health in India. And, and I think what SEWA are trying to do is ensure that their members are exposed to what a public health system can do for them. And in doing so, starting to create a demand for public health services among their members, which again, I think, is, is part of that political project. There's one more thing, and I think for this one is specifically important for informal workers. It's that the working conditions for informal workers improve rather than worsen through the process of co-production, right? So that there they should be improved income security for these workers. And I think the SEWA case is very much in line with that. SEWA does a lot to ensure that their community health workers have greater economic security. That's why it's developed as a cooperative. Also giving them a sense of ownership, autonomy and control over their working lives. In Thailand, though, the health volunteers, I think it was a more complicated situation. We did come across some women 
who, who felt the additional burden of becoming involved in health promotion activities. They were from one of the organizations HomeNet Thailand had trained, and they decided not to put in an application to the local health fund. And they just said, this is just going to be another thing that we have to do, and that is going to detract from our very, very urgent and direct need to earn an income from our businesses. And, and we just decided not to do it. So, I mean, I think, that, again, there is that tension, right? It's There is a shifting of responsibility, and I, I think... In the original paper, I ask, is this a shifting of responsibility or a political strategy? And actually, maybe, you know, maybe it's both. <laughs> maybe it's not an either or situation. So, I mean, there's certainly tensions. From your research, which are the common challenges these initiatives have to face in order to consolidate their work? Yeah, I think there are a lot of challenges and it certainly isn't right or correct to romanticize any of this work, although it is very important work. But some of the challenges I saw across the health innovations work that the organizations were coming up against, uh, the first was political factors beyond the control of workers. For example, sometimes there was just a kind of municipal politics that blocked workers from you know, ever really having hope of getting hold of these local health funds. And Sometimes there's, you know, that politics is something they can work with. And sometimes it's completely beyond their realm and scope that they have any kind of capacity to influence. I think another one was the turnover of frontline staff. There's often a lot, a rapid turnover of frontline staff who are often under huge amounts of pressure. But as some of the SEWA workers, you know, said you spend all this time developing a relationship with someone, going and visiting them and giving them your reports and letting them know what work you're doing and, you know, trying to be helpful to them. And you, in the end, you know, you develop this good rapport but then they get moved off somewhere else or they resign and then you've got to start again from scratch it's very time consuming and tiring I think health promotion work itself and both Sewa and and HomeNet Thailand are I mean a lot of the work they do is about health promotion and preventive health work I think it's difficult work to do right changing people's health behaviors is extremely difficult Sarah have recently become begun working on non-communicable diseases and trying to get people to eat better, exercise more, take their chronic diabetes medication. Um, and that's often quite a alien concept to people. You know, one, one woman said, well, I've lived until 55 and that's quite actually quite long. So, you know, if I check out, <laughs> I've done well. So I don't know. I'm not going to follow your advice <laughs> about eating better. And then how you keep your health workers motivated in those situations. I think that's that's hard. Um, I think it's amazing that they do, uh, but it's not easy. I think funding is also an issue. I mean, there's some degree of insulation from this. Sewa has its health cooperative, uh, which generates an income. So meaning some of the more basic Shakti Kendras exist without external funding. And Homeless Thailand is working within the state system. But it is also true that, you know, if you get external funding, there's a lot more yet you can do. There's a lot more that you can offer. You can really extend the work in ways that you, you can't do when there isn't funding. And I think that, that often external funding allows the organizations to push things a little bit further and gives them a little more leverage. But, it's, but obviously it's not always easy to attract that kind of funding. Yeah. And it's also not very steady, right? Um, it can can come in one year or two years, and then and then dry out after. Exactly, exactly. Which I mean, which is why they've had to develop their own sustainability models. It's not easy. So to wrap up, uh, which are the the policy implications in societies where progressive forms of co-production of social services have emerged? Is there a role for the state to play there? 
I think there always has to be a role for the state. I mean, what is when we, we talk about the dream of healthcare for informal workers, it's a dream of quality, publicly funded health services that are free at the point of access and include provisions for poor grassroots workers, such as occupational health, treating of non-communicable diseases, etc., etc. It's the dream and it's one we have to keep striving for because where it has been implemented, for example, in places like Thailand, informal workers have benefited hugely. There's no doubt about it. But I think we also have to work as strategically as possible with reality. (laughs) It's no good having a dream and ignoring the real situation that people are facing on the ground. You can't bypass that. And what I see with the kind of co-production that emerged from our Health Innovations Project is that These organizations are working towards the dream of state-based quality public health care, but they're doing so within the framework of what is possible for a start with what their realities are. They're starting from the realities of informal workers and moving from up from there rather than developing the dream and moving down from that. And at the same time, they're challenging the health system in terms of its power dynamics about how it sees poorer women workers at the bottom of the, the health system's value chain, for example. So not only pushing for the dream of, of healthcare, but also think, helping us think about ways in which women workers, community health workers, could be more empowered within those systems. You know, the kind of women informal workers who become attached to health systems themselves. How health systems could be developed in ways that are, are more friendly to them, more empowering for them, and ultimately uh, health systems that really do have reach into the grassroots. Laura Alfers, thank you very much. Thank you, Cyrus. And if you want to learn more about co-production of social services, we are going to leave the links for Laura's paper on the description of the episode. We are also going to leave the links for all the references such as Melanie Sampson's paper on co-production of waste management, as well as a blog post and a brief on Silva's initiative in India. Please don't forget to subscribe to our monthly podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please follow us on Twitter and Facebook for the latest updates on our research on informal economy and social protection. I am Cyrus Afshar, and this was the Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next month.